So if I were to ask you today, uh, what's your favorite place in the whole world? Would you have a place in mind? Right here. Yeah, right, oh, that, well, thank you. Right here, Bill. Okay. And uh, so I, I can tell, though, by the, the smiles on your faces that many of you are thinking of someplace. And uh, maybe you're thinking of uh, like your childhood home, uh, place where you grew up, or, or somewhere where you used to live. You might be thinking of maybe someplace more transient, like a warm uh, weekend vacation getaway at the beach, or uh, perhaps a mountain cabin on a snowy day uh, for all you people that are going north too early. Or... <laughs> Or, or maybe, maybe it's not a physical place at all, but kind of the idea of how your ideal place might feel uh, and feel. It's a, it's a place that's simple and, and stress-free, but still stimulating and fulfilling. Uh, it's a place where you feel safe and loved and, more importantly, uh, are with those that you love and who love you. And so now with that in mind, imagine that God has promised to give you that place one day as an inheritance. That perfect plot of land in the new heaven and the new earth where we can live in peace. Well, the good news is I can tell you today that picture is one of the things that God promises to us in Psalm 37. It's a psalm of David written probably in his later years that among other pieces of good and godly advice tell us how to live our lives here and now in the blessed hope of a future home with him. And so if you have your Bibles, as I encourage you to do, if you turn to Psalm 37, and the psalmist writes, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself attends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bow shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked shall perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, 
when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord. Keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. And though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. You know, in uh, August of last year, Pastor John preached a great sermon on this passage and focused on the advice that believers shouldn't fret over the fact that the wicked seem to always be doing so well for themselves while the the godly seem to endure what Shakespeare described as the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Uh, Because in David's words, though the godly fall, he should not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. So I don't want to replow all of that territory that John did. You can go back to the website and listen to it. But I want to focus on an aspect that might not have jumped out immediately at you as we read through that. And that is the fact that in this psalm, if you were watching, if you're paying attention, God promises not once, not twice, but seven times in the course of that psalm that we read that his people will inherit the land. And that's not just some super spiritual metaphor. It's a rock solid promise. One that I can tell you I've actually had on my mind a lot lately because for one thing, uh, and I was talking about this with several of you, we've had uh, more than our fair share of funerals lately. Uh, Funerals where I've had the opportunity to uh, share that blessed future hope that we have, that hope that our loved ones and one day ultimately we ourselves, if we're in Christ, will find ourselves. But, you know, in the course of that, it really hit me. I wonder if we really know exactly what it is that we're hoping for. And, you know, I think the truthful answer to that is yes and no. So I want to think, I want us to think about today uh, about what theologians call our eternal state. Uh, Particularly because as, you know, we had, you know, Barb Miller's memorial on Monday. Uh, We're all still very acutely feeling the loss of our dear sister Bridget. So I think in God's providence that today is the perfect day uh, for this text concerning our inheritance because You know, the world has a lot of misconceptions on this subject. Maybe even some in the church do, too. Uh, So much so that if I were to ask, just like go out on the street and ask the average person what heaven was going to be like, 
I'm not sure from their descriptions if it's a place where I would honestly want to spend all the rest of eternity. Uh, you know, we talked about this in Sunday school. Uh, a lot of people out there see heaven as kind of sitting on fluffy clouds and, and wearing a halo while little angels play their harps and float through the stratosphere. In fact, poor Linda was complaining that all her harp lessons have gone to waste after I told her about this lesson. Right? Sorry, Linda. Right? The others see it as a sort of like celestial retirement home filled with disembodied spirits and uh, until it all seems like such a fleeting apparition. So it's no wonder that so many ill-informed people have feared that uh, eternity might be a place of mind-numbing boredom uh, or, or secretly have wondered to themselves, is that all there is? Kind of like uh, the Catholic priest who said to John, my son, come forth and receive an eternal life, but John came in fifth and he won a toaster. Oh, come on, a pity laugh for that one, please. <laughs> but seriously. <laughs> but what, what ideas like that do uh, really is betray a complete ignorance of the Scriptures and sadly of the character of our God. Uh, and that those misconceptions have really more to do with Victorian mythology than biblical reality. So I want to take some time and dig into it with you. Uh, and, and just by way of clarification, whenever we talk about heaven... We have to make sure we distinguish between two specific things. The intermediate state, which deals with the question of where exactly does our soul go when we die, and the eternal state. That's the part I'm focusing on today, which speaks of the, the nature of human existence after the resurrection of the body at the end of the age. Uh, as for the intermediate state, that question of where do we go when we die, uh, that's answered in a lot of places in God's Word. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, uh, remember he said he would rather be absent from the body and, and be present or be at home with the Lord. Uh, and maybe most importantly of all, our Lord Jesus told that repentant thief on the cross, uh, he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, so where does a believer go when they die? Well, we immediately enter spiritually into that blessed presence of the Lord to be with him. To be with him at that moment that this physicality is abandoned while we eagerly, though, await the resurrection of our body at the end of the age in Christ's final return. Now, as, a, as an example, when some folks in the Thessalonian church were confused about this whole idea, the apostle Paul wrote to them uh, and said, Dear brothers and sisters, we uh, want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you won't grieve like people that have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we'll be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. And so I encourage you. And I'm encouraged just by reading them. And you know, uh, we come from different theological backgrounds, so we can arm wrestle over whether this is a, a description of pre-tribulation rapture or, or mid-trib or 
or post-trib, but I think we have the liberty together as brothers and sisters in Christ to agree that whenever Jesus comes back and he is coming back, that when he does, I'm going with him. And if you are spiritually reborn, so are you. Uh, going on to into the words of today's psalm, Psalm 37, to inherit the land, to inherit that new creation that the Father has had in mind for his elect from eternity past. Just as Romans 8 tells us, uh, Paul wrote, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And there's a lot we can say about all those things, those all things that are promised to us about our eternal future in God's new creation. But in the short time that I have left, I want to leave you with just a few bullet points. And so uh, first let me reiterate, bullet point number one would be that our future existence will be very real. Very real. The new heaven and the new earth are not going to be some uh, ethereal existence, but rather a place where all that was ruined in the old heaven and the old earth will be repaired and will be beautified in the new, including us. And think about it. Why would God go to all the trouble to create a new earth if there wasn't going to be anybody living on it? Right? Why would we be given new resurrected bodies if we weren't going to live in a material universe? But the Bible is clear that the day is coming when the original paradise that God intended us to be a part of, the one like where he placed Adam and Eve will be restored. And I don't know about you, but I can hardly wait for that to happen. And apparently, according to Paul, the universe can't wait either because he wrote in Romans 8, for all creation is eagerly awaiting for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against his will, all creation was subject to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Oh, that that would come soon. And that brings me to my second bullet point, that our inheritance in Christ is imperishable. It's not subject to corruption and decay. In contrast to everything that we see around us, because I don't know about you, but I don't think you have to look very far to realize that everything on earth is in the process of decaying. Right? Rusting, falling apart, our, our houses, our, our cars, uh, even our own bodies. But our inheritance in Christ is unfading. And, and that's kind of a tough concept to grasp onto because as creatures of this world it's hard to imagine colors that never fade uh, or excitements that never diminish or the value of something that never depreciates because this world is fading away but our inheritance is not of this world and its glorious intensity will never diminish just like we read in this morning's text from psalm 37 david wrote fret not yourselves because of evildoers be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb, but he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And what is our righteousness? Or I guess I should say, uh, who is our righteousness? Who is our righteousness that secures that inheritance? It's Jesus. And Psalm 37 tells us that too. We read in verse 39, the salvation, right? The the Yeshua, the Jesus, that same 
name that Gabriel told Mary to give to her firstborn son, the, the Jesus, the Yeshua of our righteousness, the Lord, he is, not it is, but he is our stronghold in times of trouble. And that brings me to my third point, that our inheritance is safe with him no matter what. Because what we have in Christ is being kept safe by him for us and no one can steal it from us. That's why the Bible tells us in John 10, Jesus said to his disciples, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And you know, when we understand that, and we understand that that future is awaiting us, we're better able to endure whatever comes our way in this life. And we can give God praise even during trials because we have his guarantee that we're going to receive all that he's promised for us. Since neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In that place where our endless inheritance and our eternal security is based not on anything inherent in us, but on God's love for those whom he's redeemed. Redeemed not with perishable things, but one purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ in a plan initiated by God the Father and enacted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That same spirit that's acted as a signpost and a guide for the final destination of God's people since the days of the patriarchs. Those men like Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, who the writer of Hebrews tells us, were looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That same city where someday Barbara and, and Bridget and Bernice and, and Ione and all of those folks that have been lost so quickly to us here will be reunited not only with their physical forms and with their families and with their friends, but with the congregation of all the faithful from every tongue and tribe and race and nation in that one city, that city that will be the capital of all the nations, the New Jerusalem. The one the Apostle Paul writes about in Revelation 21, when he said, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And you know, in the rest of that chapter, John describes this new Jerusalem as as fantastically huge, and we don't have the time to read it in this setting unless you guys want to stay for another hour. Uh, but I encourage you to read it at home later today where John records that the city is nearly 14,000 miles long and 14,000 miles wide and, and as, as high as it is long, so it's this perfect cube dazzling in every way and that it's 12 foundations bearing the name of the 12 apostles are decorated with every kind of precious stone. And it has 12 gates, each made of a single pearl, bearing the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that the whole place is transversed end to end with streets of gold so pure that you can see through them. But, you know, that's just the beginning. Because it's not just described as physically beautiful, but as a place of unimagined blessings where 
The Bible says the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, is flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb right through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the street, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, continually yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. You know, but best of all, best of all, it's a place where the Bible says in Revelation 21, behold, there the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And you know, if you, if you think about it, when someone we love dies, what do we say? They passed away, right? But you know, our great hope as believers is that one day death itself is going to pass away. We have it as a promise from God that it'll pass away and out of sight and out of mind as we enter the new heaven and the new earth in a place where the hurts and disappointments of this world have no more sting. In a place where the frustrations of this life are replaced by unspeakable joys and a place where the pains of this life are not permitted because the old world with all of its corrosive sins and corrupt people will be gone. Just as we read this morning, Psalm 37, it said, Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. And then he adds, you'll look on when the wicked are cut off. He says, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. And though I sought him, he could not be found. Which brings me to my closing point, which is this offer, this inheritance, this heavenly home is conditional. Because as much as people in the world may wish to believe it, and even as much as we may be tempted to believe it ourselves, not everyone will be found in the new creation when we get there. Do you know, in this same chapter on the new Jerusalem, the Apostle John also gives this caveat. He, he says, first of all, to the one who conquers, he will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, but, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in that lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And that's a sobering thought. But you know, when I was thinking about that phrase, you know, one of the things that I, I got to share at, at Barb Miller's memorial on Monday was that she, ha she had said to me and to her family in her last few days, she said, you know, I only want to die once. And, of course, she meant she didn't want to have any more surgeries or procedures uh, where she could find herself maybe, you know, dying on the operating table and being revived only to have to die again. But that, that phrase really stuck in my mind, that idea, that promise, really, of only having to die once because it's one of the greatest promises that we as Christians have. And if you think about it, all of Scripture really confirms that for us. Confirms it in the final analysis, you're either born twice and die once, or you're born once and die twice. And it's, it's really simple if you, if you stop and think about it. Meaning if you are born again, if you've experienced the second birth by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will only ever have to endure the singular experience of physical death 
And then you'll live forever in the blessedness of God's kingdom. But on the other hand, if you are only ever born once, if you are only born into the world of humanity and are never born again by the Holy Spirit of God, God's word is is quite adamant in saying that you will experience not only the death of the physical body, but will experience the second living death of eternal punishment in hell. Because, brothers and sisters, whoever you are, death is not the end of the story. Uh, It's not the end of your story, and it's not the end of my story. We're just going to move from one state of existence to another, and we'll kind of pull up stakes, as it were, and, and move on. Just as we read in 2 Corinthians, uh, we read this a couple of times in, in Sunday school and we shared this at Barber's Memorial. Paul writes, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, uh, and, and just in case his readers didn't understand what he meant, he says parenthetically, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven and eternal body made for us by God himself and not with human hands. And brothers and sisters, the time to get ready for that place is today. That time to get ready for that place is now because the Bible says God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now, now he commands everyone, everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who that is by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I call on you in his name today. Uh, You who the Spirit will give ears to hear and use who he won't to repent and believe the gospel so that when that day comes, you might find yourself by God's grace among the righteous that inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Amen.